This evening's talk <clears throat> is about the seamless circle of the parami of generosity. And we'll begin with some discussion about the paramis. What is a parami? The paramis are <clears throat> often described as the accumulated forces of purity within the mind, within the heart. Every mind moment that is clear, free of greed, hatred, and delusion, has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. Each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our heart and mind. One of the root words of the Pali word, parami, conveys a sense of supreme quality. And in Sanskrit, the word is paramita, and the translation of that is going toward something. So, going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed, and I'll list them in Pali and in English. The first is dana, generosity. The second is sila, virtue or ethical behavior. The third is nikama, renunciation. Next is panya, wisdom. Virya, energy or effort. Kanti, patience. Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, Resolve or determination, metta, loving kindness, and the last is upeka, equanimity. As each of these qualities grow, strengthen, and mature within us, the accumulation of the qualities of non greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience the accumulation of the qualities (coughs) of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort, energy, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become very forceful and result in many, many forms of happiness, various forms of contentment and a sense of well-being in relationship to the most basic, worldly, sensual pleasures all the way through to the highest, most refined happiness of the awakened, of the liberated heart and mind. The development, 
growth and maturation of these perfections, these forces in the mind and heart help to counter the forces that cause us human beings such great suffering. Everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly or nothing occurs accidentally. The practices that lead towards the uh, development of these qualities in our lives, in our heart, in our mind, aren't to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important, thought of as not the real practice. These aspects of the training of the mind is really an essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of our practice as we move along towards liberation. As these qualities grow and deepen and get more and more refined, they're incredibly powerful causes of spiritual accomplishment, all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind and heart of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct, of action, our way of being in the world. Conduct in its everyday worldly sense. These paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve. In this case, resolve to practice. The second basic aspect of the paramis is related to the purity of wisdom, of understanding, of insight, both in relationship to everyday worldly life and wisdom, understanding, insight of the deepest liberating kind. The second aspect of these perfections includes the paramis of panya, wisdom, patience, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are interrelated, and so bring each other to light over and over and over again. Our practice itself, in its process, is the practice and the process of purification, as I've said uh, quite a number of times through this retreat. The path of practice that leads one toward liberation are the various practices, uh, samatha, concentration, vipassana, insight, and other various uh, specific practices such as all of the Brahma-vihara practices, uh, metta, compassion, appreciative or empathetic joy, upekka, equanimity, and there are other practices as well, uh, are called the path of purification. 
the development of the paramis organically, quite naturally occurs within the context of each and all of these practices. In light of the fact that you soon will be moving from an intense, uh, intensive retreat setting um, out into the larger world, and considering our everyday life here in this intensive retreat setting, bringing the par and of course our everyday life outside of the retreat setting, that isn't too far away now, bringing the paramis more and more to the forefront of our daily practice life here and there can be quite helpful and also quite fruitful. It can really be a potent aspect of our practice. The paramis, of course, are to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and the potential perfection of these qualities of mind and heart is that they're something to work towards, something to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern. So no greed, no hatred, no delusion, which, of course, with out a doubt, is of great benefit for everyone, oneself very much included. The word parami used in relationship to a particular person or, or persons refers to one who does wholesome deeds with a very uh, pure and a genuine motivation to help others and to help themselves as in practicing the Dhamma, to gain liberation. As we move towards this little by little through our practice, as we begin the Dhamma, as we practice the Dhamma to gain liberation, it's quite okay and actually necessary to have self-interest. This is wholesome self-interest. In pursuing the Dhamma this way, as I think everyone here understands, there's no harm done in relationship to others. Traditionally, the practice, uh, development, and gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. So this evening, we'll look at the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of heart and mind.
And we'll also be exploring uh, some of the other paramis to some degree. And so beginning with the story, some years ago now when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society as a resident teacher for the staff there, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, which isn't very far away from IMS, to, and I'd go there to pay a visit uh, to my friend, the Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you may know of him. His name translates as Maha, which translates as great, and Gosananda, the sound of bliss. Maha, as he was fondly called, was from Cambodia and is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and villages and refugee camps during and after the Vietnam War. Maha died some years ago at the age of 94, or we think he was around 94. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, really so rare. A being with a really, truly unfettered mind and pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. During that time, a very sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken uh, into his quarters to say hello. We didn't know each other very well, and we hadn't seen each other for over a year. So I didn't know if he would remember me. Being such an old man, uh, there were things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him the last time that we had met, and I asked him if he remembered me. And he responded by saying, Oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) Well, I kind of burst out laughing like we're all doing right now. And I said, Wow, must be quite a nose. (laughs) And he very directly and very sweetly said, It's a good nose. During a three-month retreat that I was teaching at, uh, at IMS, not very long uh, after the Colorado retreat that I uh, taught with Venerable Gosananda, I went to visit uh, Maha at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who used to call me Mum. <laughs> and at one point I asked him why he called me Mum when in fact I was so much older, or he was so much older than I was. And his response was, well, we've all been each other's mothers at some point, so you're mom. (laughs) So that day, uh, mom and grandfather sat 
and drank some tea and laughed a bit and talked a little history about his life, talked about the three-month retreat that I was teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which was uh, Venerable's most favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart, the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered in just simply being. I found it quite amazing and quite surprising when I was with him and afterwards. My heart felt like it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then on outward. And an experience that, in fact, would always continue on beyond our time together for a while. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there uh, with Maha filled the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar for me to take back to the three-month yogis, all the people who were practicing during that three-month retreat. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity that occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we here are sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a relatively recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that displays a number of paramis, in particular generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, effort, and resolve. And this particular telling is adapted from the tale as told by storyteller Rafe Martin. It said that many Maha Kalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amaravati in India. And offer an evening of public talks, revealing the Dhamma. The villagers were very excited and felt deeply honored. So to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk through uh, their village and then to cover it with some very fine cloth. In the forest, 
just outside this village of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and much virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later lifetime was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died a few years before, leaving him seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth. Neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No. I will leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king, and he gave all of his money to the poor and entered into the forest life of a hermit, eating wild fruit, wearing clothes of bark made of bark, and letting his hair grow long and matted. And he practiced energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. Within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a very bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days, blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Deepankara's uh, visit to the village, Young Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in the town. It said that, seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? What are, why are you working in the midday sun? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha, replied the workman, don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? While Sumedha's heart leapt with joy, a Buddha, he thought, rare is it to even hear the word Buddha, rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman with the road picking a particularly swampy patch of uh, low ground to fill in. And he worked with a heart and a mind filled with light and joy, repeating to himself over and over again, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air the Buddha Dipankara was approaching. It said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending from the Buddha Dipankara and a great soft 
golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the wet ground and then he lay down on top of it and he loosened and spread out his long matted hair making a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties, all the danger, I'll never turn back. I am resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and to benefit all beings. Well, the next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot. And looking down at Sumedha, he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. In many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. And when he becomes a young man, he will see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertion and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of milk rice. And then, with renewed strength and energy, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort, With great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, became delirious with joy when he heard this. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha. And then the next moment, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then the Buddha Dipankara continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity and filled with joy and with strength of purpose. It's said that he rose up in the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing hard towards his goal.
We usually think of generosity as the practice of offering. But in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving. The process, it's a process which clearly helps to purify and to transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and the transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of our basic human virtues. We offer, we give, we receive. It's really this seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced, cultivated, and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivated and manifested in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning, many years ago. And my four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area. And with a big and very bright smile on his face, thrusts a bunch of bright yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and with heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China during my 46th birthday. And the friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a a two-room apartment with a Chinese family who were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired uh, my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I learned that In China, the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of experiencing uh, some degree, actually a fair amount uh, of clinging and attachment, I decided to give my bracelet to this woman, young woman, for my birthday. Though actually feeling kind of like a one-handed giver (laughs) during my consideration of doing this. And then finally deciding to really just do it. And when the time came to actually give her the gift, it was uh, with both hands and with an open heart. And it was really a truly a joy at that point. But the process of getting there uh, was very much a practice of generosity for me. 
a good friend of mine waited <clears throat> some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And finally, at one point, they do. All the conditions come together. But just a week before the retreat begins, she calls to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes a small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of his car. And he gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothes and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice calls, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. And the child is led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and the thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. Quite a number of years ago now, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area here in New Mexico. And hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothes, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving. That the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your probably fairly recent part of your life, Uh, the recent part of your practice, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions come together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and you receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day as your retreat unfolds.
So just for a moment now, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning, holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks and nuns is moving slowly and gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks and nuns' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or father or older sister or brother and seeing this ritual, seeing this offering each morning taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness quite apparent in the, this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a natural part of your life. In some words from the Buddha, if beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks lived, all lived in the same way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking to his Sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful, not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't so easily available in this country or in Canada or in Israel, (laughs) which, at least in part, is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life. Nor do we regularly engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. 
and through that process reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. And to the contrary, this retreat has really been quite special and quite wonderful. In this regard, with so many meals generously offered as dana. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations. Material accumulations, and the accumulation of ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we were pretty deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations. To think and to feel and to project that this is who we are. In the light of this pervasive and very sticky conditioning, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing, knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things underneath and beyond all of this training, underneath and beyond this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. A poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. She wrote this uh, in 1978 when she was in Colombia. And she calls it kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all of this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, 
it is I you have been looking for. And it goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches us and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. I think that as a culture, there's a deep, quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops, our discriminating capacity grows. The mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today may be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else, maybe next week. Maybe even in this retreat or, or maybe some other retreats that you've sat. My spot in the meditation hall. My seat in the dining room. My walking path. What in the world really belongs to us? What can we really truly possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be quite a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as Generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and confusion that's generated through the conditioning, through the training of accumulating and then fixing on and identifying with all of our material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can really be held onto in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that actually can never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given.
And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so, from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving. There's a short sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya um, called the Dvejana Sutta, which translates as two people, the sutta of two people. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove in, at Anattapindaka's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, <laughs> went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gotama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. We have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama, instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha responds, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. You have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds to allay your fears. This world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. And the Buddha goes on. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving, by giving. What's given is well salvaged, said the Buddha. Traditionally, in the Buddhist teachings, three kinds of giving giving are spoken of. There's what's called beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, still kind of holding on to what we give. It's still mine. In fact, how I first began giving my favorite bracelet to my young Chinese friend. In this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have, And afterwards, we might even wonder whether we should have given it all. The second kind of giving, we could call friendly giving. And we give open-handedly, with both hands. We share what we have. Because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. It's a clear giving. Then there's what is sometimes called queenly or kingly giving. Giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves really to be only temporary caretakers of what's been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. So in this, we could say there's no giving. 
There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. The 8th century Buddhist monk Shanti Davis said this. He said, Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. <laughs> There's nothing to be held onto in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. Desmond Tutu from South Africa said this, Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And as you well know, we don't always live with this purity and completeness of queenly and kingly generosity. I think it's fair to say that this is at least in part one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves, to honor and to respect our capacity of heart at any given point along the way, and not to pretend anything to ourselves or to others by maybe imitating or acting out of some idealized image that you might have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's really important to recognize, honor, and respect our limits along the way and to come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, acting out of unconditional kindness and compassion, when in fact we might be acting out of fear of loss or fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal, verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from the place of trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and delusion. It strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which in turn then causes suffering in ourself and maybe in the other person as well. 
And we might be creating what in modern language is called codependency rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't yet have the feeling of a simple okayness about being here, meaning an okayness about being alive in this life just simply because here you are, alive in this life. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness, and a sense of an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this very simple okayness, this needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving and sharing and caring might be done with a kind of subtle, often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet fully healed from the learned, from the conditioned feelings of lack, there certainly may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We might give ourselves away or lose ourself in an unhealthy way in what seems like generous support but which may actually be unskillful giving or support of others. When this happens we actually feel less whole more depleted, weaker which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance of the real needs of others along with a lack of awareness of our own needs. It's important to understand, respect, and honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of a deep and a true generosity develops and matures gradually. In relationship to this, On the scale of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance... To this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much. To win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children. To earn the appreciation of honest critics. To endure the betrayal of false friends. To appreciate beauty. To leave the world a bit better. Whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To know even one life 
has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. Our inclination to intuitively feel and to know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the relative level of life and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness and our and our inclination to feel and to manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations and our inclination to touch and to know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, at least one or maybe all of these inclinations are some of the really deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. And just briefly looking uh, at the practice of generosity from another perspective. There's a practice that a Tibetan uh, teacher told me about, uh, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, uh, miserly people, people who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has uh, trouble giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or to receive it graciously if it's offered. Receiving help or gifts or praise, even love, can be difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically sick or distressed emotionally. So the practice is to take something very ordinary, something maybe that you might not think of as being particularly valuable, like a potato or maybe a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand. You pass it back to this hand, back to this hand, just back and forth and back and forth from hand to hand until it gets easy and you don't feel like a fool. (laughs) And then you might go on to the higher practices, as they're called. If one is motivated and inclined to continue the practice of generosity and relinquishment, one moves on to seeming more valuable, uh, seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go of, relinquishing, offering everything. All of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences and ideas and beliefs, and one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings, 
So the practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma or the Dharma, and to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point I did this practice, but instead of precious jewels, rice was the offering, which actually felt quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here, without the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. With the trust that it's just right, just enough, for our spiritual growth to unfold from right now. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart and with a clear, concentrated, mindful awareness. Receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, with appreciation, humility, and with equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a mindful, focused awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, to any task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath, from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to receive life fully. Be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. And that this is intimately connected to the development of a deeply generous heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all of these people? Well, maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help and to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us, and we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. So, closing this evening's talk with one more story. About, oh, 35, 36 years ago now, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, 
he would come to the area in Michigan where I lived to teach us. One year I invited him to come and stay at my house. Uh, It was a small, very old, five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, just one of my three sons and I were living there. So the summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came. An old, very well-used, quite tiny car pulled up into the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. And he was quite a big man. He was about six foot three, very big boned. And he looked even bigger with his uh, cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat on. And then it was kind of like one of those uh, cars uh, in the circus in the center ring. Pulls up into the center ring and the doors open and people just start pouring out. And you're amazed at, at how many people could fit into such a little car. So as my son and I watched, seven people emerged from this tiny little car. Wallace's helpers and members of his family. And it turned out that there were 11 people living in our little house uh, for this 10-day period. Well, the thought came up pretty quickly. How will we all live and sleep in our tiny house? Well, it seemed that the space expanded somehow. People were sleeping everywhere. (laughs) Food arrived. People would stop by in the afternoon to meet and meet with and to listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the ecology center until about 12.30 a.m. And then at 12.30 a.m. it was time for dinner because uh, no meals were to be taken through the afternoon and evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days I had to let go of many of my preferences and many of my habits. How I use the various spaces in my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life food preferences, and lots of other preferences. Wallace and one of the members of his family smoked cigarettes continuously in my no-smoking house. (laughs) And as I already said, people slept all over the place. Um, And the day would begin quite late in the morning uh, with the late, because of the late night sweat lodge ceremonies. Uh, 1 a.m. was dinner time, so people slept in the next morning. And then each afternoon, the house was filled with about 15 or 20 people uh, coming by to listen as Wallace shared his teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow, there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats, and there would be bowls of food at the door, bowls and dishes of food left on the kitchen counter. And often a friend and I would be cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night of this 10 days, Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And as we all sat together in a circle, each one of us was asked to offer some words uh, from the heart 
in relationship to our 10 days together. And then um, they offered my son and I uh, beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for us sharing our space and our time and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke and he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time and energy, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. And he said, if one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance, he said. When everyone left the next day in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all get back into the old car. It's kind of like watching a movie playing backwards. And then uh, the two of us went back into the house and we stood there in amazement. The seeming, seeming great expanse of our home holding all of the people and all of the activity and all of the energy for all of those days, it seemed to have shrunk. And yet somehow, internally, we both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And closing the talk with one more Mary Oliver poem, the last one of this retreat. (laughs) She calls it Goldenrod. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, Saffron and orange and pale gold in little towers. Soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that's better than these light-filled bodies. All day on their airy backbones they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness in the pure peace of giving away one's gold. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. 